Okay, hello, this is Charlie. Uh, to, this is to Helen back on, uh, gosh, March 27th, I think. And um, it's podcast number 48. Amazing. Still, I just continue to be dazzled by how many I've done. I can't believe it. And um, uh, just want to make one brief comment about something I said I was going to do last week, but then I'm not doing this week, which I was going to do, which was I was I said something about a Zoom session, setting up a Zoom session. For those who don't know what a Zoom session would mean, it just means uh, that if if I uh, tell you where what where to go on your you get a link on your computer. You go to that link and then you put in a code. Uh, you then are on for a Zoom session, and that includes that you you know you can hear me and see me, and hear each other and see each other to if if somebody has a camera on their computer that's on, and we can talk with each other and uh, see each other, which makes it a little easier, and would be nice. And then you guys can ask questions. Uh, I can I can tell you things and ask you things. So we're going to try one of those uh, very shortly because I'm going to get a Zoom uh, link. I have to connect with an account with uh, NEABPD uh, with Perry Hoffman, who's going to help me link into that uh, account that they have of Zoom. So I think I'll do that next Thursday. Uh, No, I won't do it next Thursday. I can't for various reasons. Uh, Probably the following Thursday. So I'll do a podcast next Wednesday. So... Sorry for all the gobbledygook. Um, yeah, and thank you for continued feedback. I do get feedback. I mean, people who've listened all along write me now and then and, and give me feedback. I, I continue to ask for it. Every single bit of it makes a difference to me. It affects me. It helps me. It helps me think of what to do, what to say. It helps me know that some things are hitting home. Gosh, I had somebody who who uh, reported to me within the past week this such touching thing from my point of view is that she she told me that she has found it so helpful in her own um, healing, her own recovery, and that she has these long drives that she has to have. And she has children, little younger children, and they go on long drives. And she'll, she'll put on the podcast for a long time, and she's been she's listened to a bunch of them. And then she said that, you know, her kids, so it wasn't her intention, but they hear them. And she said that her one of her kids, I think a daughter the other day, said when she was getting upset or something, Mom, use half smile. I thought, that's so great that, you know, the kids are learning that. And it made me think, what a, what a lovely moment in a family when one member of a family really is so constructive uh, so compassionate and and makes a suggestion like that that reinforces uh, your own uh, healing. Um, and I, I've occasionally had those moments uh, with my own kids that I've cherished. Um, so today, 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 I'm uh, I decided to talk about um, the whole topic of the ways in which DBT skills uh, fail skills training fails, Uh, intentions to, really good intentions to have somebody learn all the skills or learn some skills and change their life, uh, sometimes just doesn't work out that way. And that there's a lot of reasons for it. And uh, I think a lot of us who've done this for a long time, including maybe people who listen to this, 
um, have lots of uh, understanding of that, have been through a lot of that, and have seen a lot of that. But I just decided I would go through and sort of categorize some of that and try to spell it out for people, whether you are a DBT therapist, a family member of somebody who needs help, or you yourself have emotion dysregulation, or you're just any of any human being in the universe, and you're trying to use these skills. And so uh, what, what, is, what interferes, I guess? And there's a lot of things that interfere. So I went through it, and I, and I, came, and I decided I'm going to come up with 10 things that interfere. And not because there are 10, <laughs> but because that's what people do. You know, there's lists of 10 of this and 10 of that all the time. So I thought, you know, that's a good number to aim at. The fact is, any of those lists of 10 of things, actually, it's probably, it could be 6 turned into 10 or 14 turned into 10 or whatever it is. So I don't know. Uh, this number is, uh, is just to help me have a structure for talking to you. Um, but I hope it'll cover a number of things, and obviously it, I probably haven't been all-inclusive. But there's a kind of order to it, and people who do DBT skills teaching will recognize this order after a little bit, uh, 1 through 10, because it's based on some of the structures of what we use to teach uh, DBT. So here we go. Um, you know, I, I would just say first, I, uh, when I, I've said this in the podcast before, but I, uh, my start with DBT came in the late 80s when I saw Marsha Linehan teach a skills group out in Seattle when I went out to see what she was doing when I heard of her and um, watched her teach a skills group. And I was just very excited when I saw it. I was a psychoanalyst at the time and doing psychoanalytic treatment with borderline personality disorder. And, uh, and I watched her skillfully teach skills. And I just thought, wow this is really interesting. And with all of the psychoanalytic type of work that I'm doing with my patients and in our hospital, um, they need these things. And we don't teach them directly. Sometimes we teach them less directly or with less skill and preparation. So I thought this is a great addition. And uh, so I started teaching skills. I've taught skills ever since. And I've always felt pretty excited about it and uh, optimistic about it. I've gotten feedback from patients over the years and staff and therapists that this is really helpful. Um, but I'll have to tell you the fact is that that positive feedback that comes after skills groups um, sometimes belies what you learn next. If you say to somebody, hey, can you tell me any of the skills that you learned? What do you think has made the most difference to you? And then you sometimes get a blank stare. You know, you sometimes get, oh, um, oh, yeah, well, they're all really helpful to me. Say, okay, can you, and I believe it maybe, but I think, what do, but can you name it? What especially has been helpful? Well, let's see. Um, well, there's those ones where you just kind of like, uh, you're, you're just quiet and you sit there. Uh, you mean mindfulness skills. Yeah, mindfulness skills, those are really helpful. Can you, can you name any of them? Well, no, they're all really good. Okay, you get a lot of conversations like that, more than I wish, um, where you are convinced that something was helpful to people, and it doesn't mean that something wasn't helpful. I think people are helped a lot by skills training in ways that are uh, not necessarily because they retained every skill, not necessarily because they went and made use of every skill and made it part of their behavioral repertoire and it changed their life 
But I think sometimes people are helped by skills training just because of the format and the relationship or relationships in it. Sometimes I think people are helped because it's the first time for a few people that they have gotten the idea, even the attitude, that there is such a thing as deliberately being skillful. So what skill it is might rotate from one to another to another, but they learn something brand new, which is that you can separate yourself out from yourself and you can observe your functioning and you can realize you're missing something that you might be able to do and then you can plug something in whether it's a dbt skill or not it gives you just an increased sense of efficacy and control that there are things i can do that i'm not doing now that's a huge discovery so there's lots of reasons why people um have positive outcomes that they report from skills training. But it's also true, from and studies have shown this, that people do acquire a lot of skills for regulating their emotions. And, and that so it sometimes just works really well. So it varies a lot. And it's another very important thing to realize. Skills training is not necessarily uniformly helpful. There may be statistical, statistically-based evidence that says that it's helpful, but that doesn't mean it's helpful for this person or that person or as much for this person as it was for that person. So there's a lot of individual variation. And, of course, you know, when you're dealing with uh, organisms, meaning ourselves, with trillions, listen to that, trillions of synaptic connections in the brain uh, and, 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 you know, huge variations, of course it doesn't always work for everybody, and you really have to tailor it. And sometimes what helps is something that happens almost uh, emergent and not the thing itself. So what I've heard about um, people when I've asked about the skills training, there's a lot of people who very clearly tell you it's disappointing, and they say things like, um, oh, they just don't work for me. That's a good one. Oh, they're so superficial, it's like Band-Aids. Now, I, I have deep problems. Um, they're boring. You know, I have to sit there and go to, and be in a class, and they're boring. Oh, I don't need these, uh, these, these things. I mean, if I want to do better, I just do better, well, like willpower. Or my doctor doesn't really believe in them, I can tell. You know, he just does lip service with it, and then the therapist is doing it. But I, I don't think it's really necessary. My doctor's really important. He gives me medications. Um, I don't believe in them. I don't believe in skills. I was excited when I first started, but then, you know, I started to realize this isn't going to do very much for me. These skills, they, you know, they, they're helpful at the beginning, but then they don't keep being helpful. You know, I thought I learned them, but then they fade out. I was made to do it, so I really didn't even want to do it. I tried not to pay attention. So there's, a million, there's those and a million more reasons that people say these are not helpful for me. So let me be clear about a few things getting, getting into this. Number one, skills are not a religion. They are not a philosophy. They are not a political position. They're not an attitude, though there is such a thing as, as believing that you can do things that are skillful, which is sort of a basic belief. Um, they aren't to be believed in any more than learning to swim. You would believe in it learning to run, learning to play tennis, learning to cook, learning to read, learning to, to 
take care of a garden, these are not things to be believed in as if there's a, a freestanding um, body of stuff like a religion or a set of values. Skills are simply and complexly, but they are sequences of behavior, that's all. And you try, sometimes they're, they're not simple, they're complicated sequences of behavior. Like let's take the dear man skills, it's actually seven skills within what's called one skill, and each of those seven have subcomponents in them. So these are not so simple. Radical acceptance is a many-step process. Um, so it's not so simple. Sometimes things are a little simpler. If you distract your mind when you're in total distress by focusing on a certain thing or a certain activity, that's a simpler one to get, get hold of. But whatever they are, they're just behavioral sequences to try to build into larger or longer sequences of your own behavior. Um, and so that you change outcomes by just having a different thing that you do. And learning, from this point of view, learning just means that you're acquiring new skills or you're altering the skills you have or strengthening the skills you have. Number two, skills are not at all like medications or pills. And even though both skills and pills can enhance your functioning, you know, you take a pill. You take a pill in and you wait for it to work. You're kind of a passive recipient. Um, when we are a heavily pill-oriented, substance-oriented society. Um, and so in some ways, I think I run into a lot of people that I think think of skills like pills. Uh, like, oh, well, I already took DBT. And, you know, it didn't last. Or I took DBT and it didn't make any difference. You know, it's kind of like I took it. That's, what I, I, and that's just, uh, even though I get it, it's a little weird. But um, it's sort of like you take, take DBT and see if it's going to be useful. Um, no. Um, we realize, I mean, skills training has to be an active, effortful process like learning a language or learning a new activity. You, it doesn't just happen. You know, we wish it did. It would be great. I mean, and some things can happen that way, but not, not, not this very much. You know, what, the way this happens is we realize we have some desire or some intention or some goal or some objective, and we realize it's brought to our attention or else we realize that a particular behavioral sequence, let's say like assertiveness, uh, behaviors of assertiveness or behaviors of mindful observing, that those, those sequences would help to realize that desire. And once we link the two and we really have that desire and we really believe that that might be helpful, then we might learn what this thing is, this assertiveness thing or this observing thing and how to do it. And we try it and we practice it. And we actively incorporate it. It does not just go into our functioning any more than learning the grammar of a new language or the vocabulary or the verbs um, and how to get all the different tenses of the verbs and so on. We have to make these things part of ourselves because they matter to us, because we think they're going to help us get somewhere. It takes effort, requires enduring through failed trials and learning one skill. Learning one skill Think of how many are taught in DBT is not a small thing. A third thing I want to say about skills in general, 
They are indeed boring. Unless we try them, put them into action, and they work. Then they aren't very boring. Then they're functional. They might not be exciting, but they make us more capable of accomplishing what we want to accomplish. That's all. But otherwise, they're outside of ourselves, and they're as, as boring as looking at a sequence of, uh, of, of, of uh, elements in the periodic table of the elements. But when, when it, we make it into our own elements, it's very different. Um, another point um, is uh, these are not the kind of things that can be forced on a person. I've been in so many situations in mental health and community mental health where they say, well, she has to learn DBT skills. Well, he's not learning his skills, and therefore, you know, or, you know, we're not going to let him do such and such unless he learns the skills. And once you start thinking like that, as if it's like what you can put medicine down a, a, a toddler's mouth because they have to get an antibiotic in or something like that, and you're going to force it down, it just doesn't work that way. It will not only not work that way in the moment, it will contaminate it for the future. So you really have to cultivate the ground more like when you're making the garden and help somebody be ready and interested and willing and committed to try to do skills and then um, drop the skill in and have the person try it. And uh, so it really requires more than uh, it appears. We can't just sort of stand up open up a page of a skills manual, say, here, get this and do this. You really have to think this is a many-step process. I mean, in a way, it's unfortunate, but it's just a fact. It doesn't usually work unless the person is themselves so ready that they do this all for themselves. And let me make another point about the skills. They are far, in my opinion, as somebody who's both practiced a psychodynamic type of therapy and, and DBT and CBT therapies, You know, taking in these skills, making use of these skills, uh, is far from superficial interventions. Um, Depending on the skill, depending on the person, depending on the timing, depending on the stakes, depending on the intensity, um, and how it's done, and in the context of a caring and uh, meaningful relationship, you know, learning one skill can change your life. Learning one skill can change your psychodynamics. Learning one skill can change how you interact with other people. I'll give examples today, hopefully, as I go along. Um, okay. Okay, okay, good. So now I just want to jump into the 10 ways. I'm going to move right through them, and I can already tell that my my usual problem is I've got more than more than enough to say for the one hour that I do with you. So I hope I'm going to get through most of these. Okay, so what's first? Well, if you're going to have somebody learn a skill, first you have to start not with the skill, but actually the person has to be aware that they have a goal. A goal can be big or little. You know, it can be as big as, uh, you know, Uh, Rather than die, I want to run the New York Marathon. Uh, It can be very little. Uh, I want to interact differently uh, when I'm at breakfast uh, with my children. It's not really little, but littler than the other one. Uh, It could be a desire. It could be an intention. But there has to be something that exists in the person that is a moving force. Otherwise, skills are irrelevant. 
otherwise irrelevant. If if they if they're seen as, um, uh, as if you're trying to get people to see skills as good in and of themselves without being related to what your goals are, just come on, let's learn skills, which is what sometimes do end up in skills groups without realizing what's the relationship between this and what I need in my life. And then it's sort of like being asked to learn a language by just reading a dictionary in alphabetical order. And it's, it's as boring as that. It's as tedious as that. It, and it won't work, you know, because it's not related to anything that matters. Um, so what kind of goals do I mean? I mean, I'm going to use a couple of examples as I go through these 10 uh, factors that interfere with skills training. But th- this first factor is the, the factor of um, that there's not really a, a pre-existing understanding of a goal or a desire or an intention. But let's say there's one um, that I'll refer to over and over again because I once worked with a woman not that long ago who had a high level of of irritability. She had some, um, I won't go into any of her history, but she had come uh, to have an irritable temperament and to not trust a lot of relationships. And she um, would, with very low, uh, she she had a high sensitivity to things that her children did that were kind of like uh, out of line, and she would start screaming at them. And then she would regret it again and again and again. So one goal might be, I want to stop yelling at my children. A goal might be, I want to be a more patient person with, such, with one of my children who, is, who tries my patience. I want to have more compassion with and for my partner. I want to be more assertive at work with the people I work with. I think I'll be more effective. I don't want to be pushed around by members of my extended family who don't think very much of me. Um, I want to be able better to stick with routines like uh, to meditate or to uh, do exercise or to pursue certain things that matter to me. Um, uh, what else? I want to socialize. I want to be able to uh, to make friends and uh, have lunches and dinners and, and, and go to gatherings. And I stay away from all of that now, but I want to learn to do that. Um, or even as a therapist, I was working with a therapist in a supervision this week. He tends to come from the medical tradition and he's just learning uh, to do a DBT type of therapy. And his tendency, he's a, he makes very good connection with his patient and he and he's a really smart and good guy, but his tendency is to uh, always need to be uh, moving things forward in every minute or every half minute of the session, asking another question, bringing up another topic, um, not, not leaving time to pause, to consider, to tailor things to the person, to ask more details about their experience. So, you know, I'm that's a skill to learn to slow down, to pause, and to... Uh, interact in a different kind of way. So examples that I want to follow throughout uh, these things, and uh, one of them is going to be the person who yells at her child and wants to be able to stop. And there's going to be another one, a person who, uh, when triggered into it, enters into a dissociative episode where they're really not themselves. I've talked about this particular instance of a particular person many podcasts ago, and I want to return to it. It's a good example of, uh, of, of all the steps that I'm going to talk about of using skills. So all of these goals require changes in behavioral sequences. If you look at it behaviorally, 
and in and in your uh, your repertoire basically of what you do. And some also require changes in your attitude, in your understanding, in your. Some of them require insight, and I don't consider these things anymore as deeper than learning skills. They are skills. They're they're private skills. It's the capacity to to grasp something is a skill. Having an insight is actually a, a sequence of private behaviors that's a skill. And and not these aren't. Uh, they're they're all valuable. Um, um, so basically the problem that comes up in this important first step of skills training is that there's no compelling problem that's being identified or linked to the skills training. It's just problems are being considered. Okay, this person has problems, but, and so they need to learn the skills, but there's not a return. There's not an underlining. There's not a bolding of here's the problem and here's here's something that's needed and we're going to move from there and try to find a skill that's going to help that. Okay? So if you don't have those uh, anything like that, any uh, desires or intentions like that, then you can be in a skills class or you can be in a one-on-one on skills, but, you know, they're much less likely to take. They're much less likely to stick and make a difference. Okay, step number two, which is then accompanied by problem number two. So step two is let's say there is a goal or desire or intention, a big one or a small one that's clear enough, that's specific enough, it's realistic enough, it's compelling enough. What's needed next is is a sufficient understanding that a particular skill, a particular behavioral sequence that we're going to look at, talk about, try, will help with that goal. It's as if you're saying, here's the missing piece of the puzzle. And this requires being good at knowing how a particular skill is going gonna, is gonna to fit with dealing with a particular problem or with uh, getting to a particular goal. You have to have an understanding of that, the way you have to have an understanding with a jigsaw puzzle of why one piece fits in a particular spot. You know, you have to be thinking, okay, how's this skill going to work? And a lot of times people, we, do, we just don't do that. We run through our routine of teaching skills. But actually, to tailor the skill to a person, you kind of have to know the person and know their experience of the current sequence of behavior and the current failed sequence of behavior for to get that goal. And why is this skill going to make a difference? And not just every skill, though actually Marshall Linehan has been known to say that the real uh, test of a superb skills trainer is to find that uh, any skill can help with any situation. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, possible ways to go with it, but um, you've got to at least have this idea that this skill is going to matter in this way, and you've got to be able to specify that, orient that, because this step is a step of orientation. Let's say, here's why. It's like giving a rationale, uh, an orientation that makes it clear. So why does this sometimes not happen? Why do people not do that? Well, for one thing, there's sometimes too many skills, and I'll call that the skills overload problem. There's so many skills, and you're learning a few every week, and then you move on to the next ones, and you move on to the next ones. And by the time you've been through a few weeks, you're saying, oh, my God, I'm drowning in these skills. I don't know which skills I should use for which problems. I've learned too many skills, and not all skills are going to help a particular person every time reach a particular goal. 
you know, we have this tendency when we people quote believe in skills training um, that that we say someone needs the skills. Well, it's way too vague. It doesn't do a thing other than actually kind of make somebody attached to a vague hope. Um, it doesn't necessarily move the ball forward. I mean, what we want to be doing is saying this skill in this way is likely to help this challenging situation. But we just say this person needs the skills. Come on, you've got that problem. Stick with the skills training. Well, which skills? So it can be way too vague. It can be not a very good understanding. And sometimes either even a set of skills say, well, this is, distress tolerance skills are going to help you. Well, the word distress tolerance skills is just a word that captures a concept. It's actually an umbrella concept. It's not even a specific concept. So you really got to get down to it. What else is a problem of the orientation? We don't make the link between the goal and the skill in a clear enough way. It's, a, it's I'll call it the vagueness problem. Um, like I'm just thinking of a skill that um, I... Uh, like most of us, I go to the dentist sometimes. The dentist, like many of us, tells me I should floss on a regular basis. Some say I should floss twice a day, some once a day, at least once a day, or whatever. And of all the routines I have in my life, it, it used to be a hard one to build in. Especially to, I would floss in the morning, but I wouldn't floss at night. But I have dentists and dental hygienists that said, you know, you really could benefit if you floss at night also. And then I don't do it. So there's a skill. I actually know how to do the skill. And um, uh, I get oriented. And I know that the skill is a valuable skill. And I understand the reason for it. And I still uh, don't do it. And, and then I had a particular dentist a few months ago, a new dentist, who I like very much. And, and uh, he, he just explained to me one day, in the most matter-of-fact non-judgmental, which I think was very important, terms about why I should floss, which I already knew, but he had a good way of explaining it. He was kind of graphic about it um, in a good way. And, uh, and, and he just was, and he left the freedom to choose to me. He said, so that, that's why you should do it. So you really should do it if you can do it at night. And then he dropped it. After he did that, I went home, and I have pretty much done it for months every night since then, and I realized I attribute it entirely to the nature of his intervention with me. And I still wonder when I'm doing skills training, like, what did he do? It was very subtle, and it was a balance, balancing act between being compassionate with me, non-judgmental with me, clear with me, making the link as clear as possible, and then and leaving me to choose and dropping it. And that worked better for me than all of the people who had given me good advice before. So it's just one of many kinds of things. Um, another problem uh, is the one I mentioned. Um, you know, uh, the people, it's hard to orient the person to why skill. A skill would be valuable if they have this, I don't believe in skills, or skills don't work. Or I've heard from my friend, she was in DBT and it never worked for her or these are superficial, all of these attitudinal things that seriously interfere with it. And you need to hear that, validate that, um, see if you can raise questions about that. And also, like my dentist did, I mean, leave the person to think about it. 
Um, and then finally, I'd say the, this medication model for skills that I mentioned before about thinking that skills can be just something you take in like pills and they'll make a difference. That, that's a killer for this. Um, so let's say that the problem uh, here with, uh, with step number two, the patient number one, the one who's yelling at her child and she wants to stop, Let's say we come up with a skill, and there is a skill called STOP, S-T-O-P, STOP, take a step back, observe what's going on in you and around you, and proceed mindfully. That this sort of four-step, really four skills within a skill, um, that, that I could orient somebody, why would this skill be helpful? Well... And I can explain it. You know, if you are able to do this at the moment that otherwise you would begin to yell at your child, it gives you a chance to stop. It gives you a chance to think. It creates a little structure and a little space within you to think about whether you want to do that and whether you want to and and, and where it's coming from, what your body feels like, etc. And so that would be a, some that would be how you would do this step. And if you don't orient to that, it won't be obvious to somebody why you're having them learn that skill. Or the person who dissociates and their goal is to stop dissociating and you bring up the TIP TIP skills as Linehan's skills for when people are severely emotionally dysregulated, and you make the argument with your person that, you know, dissociation comes about when you are emotionally dysregulated beyond what you can tolerate, and you flip over into dissociation. And so we have a skill for extreme emotional arousal, and it's a a series of, of four steps, actually, four things you can do. And so you might make that argument and hopefully... Um, uh, move forward after that. What's the third step? The third step is, okay, now you, have a de- now you have a discrete intention or desire or goal that matters to the person. And now there's an understanding that you've shared and the patient or the other person hopefully agrees, or you yourself, if I'm talking to you about getting yourself to agree with this, that there's an understanding that skill X will help with this particular desire or goal or problem. Um, now, what do you need next? I would say you need a commitment to that as whatever is the strongest one you can get because, again, even learning one skill for one problem is not a small task. Um, in fact, I'm not going to go further in it today, but I've, I've really been revising some of my thinking about the skills training as a whole and thinking that how can I teach the skills in ways that reduce the uh, amount of cognitive density required uh, to learn these skills, like that you have to learn this many of this and this many of this and this many of this. You know, I'm starting to think, for instance, just a tiny example that I might want to say that the core skill of the core mindfulness skills is observe. And, they, and all five other skills kind of uh, uh, are on spokes, out uh, on a circumference around the skill of observing. So what I really need to do is teach the skill of observe. And that's the main thing I want people to remember and feel and practice and think about and try in different situations, that to learn to observe. And then you can go from observe to describe, 
because if you describe what you observe, you can go from observe to participate because rather than 100% observing what's happening, you are doing something similar but uh, by participating 100% in what you are experiencing. Uh, and you can go to non-judgmental and you can go to uh, one mindfully, which means to do one thing at a time, or you could do effectively, which means to do things that work. They all kind of uh, follow from observing. So um, this problem of being overskilled or overloaded with skills, you might be able to, to narrow in. Um, so um, with this step of getting a commitment, I guess that came up in that context just because it might be easier to get a commitment if I'm trying to teach fewer uh, chunks uh, rather than so many e uh, chunks of, of which they all seem to be equal. So what are the problems with the step of getting a commitment from somebody to really put their shoulder into the learning of the skill and do what they need to do to practice it and, and integrate it? Well, one is, I'll call it the tyranny of skills problem, is a, is a time when a person feels forced and beaten into doing skills. You have to do skills. Um, to the degree that a person that learns skills under the pressure of that kind of tyranny, I think it's very hard to get uh, a, 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 free, a, free, a freely existing commitment, yes, I want to do this. Second, the instructor doesn't really uh, truly understand the skill and how this person, how this person could do it. And this I'd call it like, the generic skills problem as if you can just sort of stick any skill on any person and uh, rather than tailor it to the person. And of course, when you're teaching a group of people these skills, that's a really hard thing to do. You can do some of it, but then more of it might have to be done by an individual. But, you know, you really have to try to tailor things to the person and, and, and they'll be more committed if they feel like, oh, I get it. This skill is for me and 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 when you're teaching the skill if you're thinking about that person and how they need to take that skill in and how they're going to put it in their repertoire and it's very different than how the person at the opposite side of the table is going to take in the same skill and put it into their repertoire which is very different so you kind of have to tailor it and that will increase the connection between the skills trainer and the person and it'll increase the likelihood of making a commitment. Um, and I think that you use um, typical in DBT, though I've not been over in, the, in this podcast uh, anytime, uh, to really go in detail over the commitment strategies, the strategies to strengthen somebody's commitment to a behavioral change. Um, those strategies are helpful here. Uh, you can't use every one of them every time. But one of those strategies is to insist uh, that the patient has the freedom to choose whether to do something. So in this case, whether to learn that skill, whether to practice that skill, a person you have to honor the freedom to choose is going to make you more likely to have a person who's able to uh, give a stronger commitment. And if you ask for a small commitment, like you break it down into a smaller bit, you practice it one time instead of five times, you practice a small part of it instead of the whole thing. Um, you know, so that you just ask for a little bit less and ask for a full-scale 100% commitment to a smaller chunk rather than a um, commitment to a bigger chunk where it's questionable whether the person's going to be able to do it. 
and then try to ratchet that up to a higher and higher chunk uh, that you're going to ask somebody to commit to. So um, using that, which is called the foot in the door strategy, um, the shaping strategy, continuing to interact positively with the person, reminding them or highlighting for them some of their positive qualities, especially things like their effort and their courage and their humor and their humanity um, as they're learning the skill. Uh, and, and so that you they become aware repeatedly that you think that they're really good in various ways and that they can do this sort of thing. So that's called shaping. Um, and just the strength of the attachment between the person who's teaching and the person who's being taught is by itself, I find that when I've worked with someone for a while, and if we have a good attachment, and I want them to do a skill, um, they're more likely to make a commitment to that skill in a very short period of time than if we don't have a great attachment and I'm having to try to get them to do something. Um, I think the dentist with me did something that can be very helpful for all of us to get a commitment from people by uh, making a clear statement and a non-judgmental statement, and making it kind of like low-key, easy-sell, matter-of-fact, uh, you could do this, here's how it would be, um, and be alert with them and fully present in the moment. Any of that is is always helpful. Um, another thing is to offer skills. This is a hard thing to capture, but I think metaphorically, I want to offer a skill um, and, and a request for strengthening a commitment to a skill when somebody's already leaning in towards doing the skill rather than asking someone to up their commitment when actually they're pushing it away um, where I get into a fight with them. I mean, not a physical fight, but I, we get into a little struggle. No, I kind of wait if there's somebody moves toward being interested in the skill, curious about it, then I might be much better off trying to get more of a commitment. So the person who doesn't want to yell at her child, if it makes sense to her to learn the skill of stop so that instead of yelling at her child, she stops and takes a step back and she observes things in her body and in her mind and around her and considers options and then proceeds forward. If, if I can uh, uh, get her to agree to do it, and then we might even go over some reasons why it might be very helpful, which are also called the pros and going over the pros and cons of, of a choice. And reminder, she has the freedom to choose and shape her by indicating how much I know she loves her child and, and uh, get the foot in the door by asking her to just take a small step first. Um, all of these things. Or the person that wants to stop dissociating, and I want to teach the TIP skills, TIP skills, you know, and I and I just try to help the person understand, of course, why why this will work and and what the advantages are, and maybe go over some of those and ask first. Let's do just a little bit of it, and let's do it when you're not dissociating. Let's do it in the office when you're not dissociating, and 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 get you to make a, a small commitment, a big commitment to a small chunk of it, um, and and then. Uh, uh, again, uh, shape by uh, reinforcing some of the positive qualities. Okay, so now number four. So now what? We have a discrete goal or desire. We now have helped a person see the rationale for the skill and why the skill fits for that goal and why it's needed for that goal. 
And now we've done what we can to try to strengthen whatever commitment there is to be going ahead with this. What's needed next? Many things are still needed, but what I like to put next is, are, are there good conditions that are going to support the learning and practice of this skill? Because if you're living in a hurricane, if you're living in a chaotic household, if you're living in a situation where you are busy 24 hours a day and you're always tired, and you know, and you are living in a situation where nobody else understands what you're doing by doing skills training, and no one really thinks it's a great thing but you, and you, you're not so sure, you know, it's just a matter of time before you're going to go down. You really can't. It's very hard to maintain this. You need time to do this built into your life. And depending what kind of skill it is, it might be that you even build in a skills practice time per day. Or when you do certain things, you're going to practice certain skills. You know, like you're going to practice uh, observing skills whenever you walk upstairs. You're going to walk up slowly and noticing every step you take in a way you never have before. Or when you're at a stoplight in your car and you're just going to use that moment when you're at a stoplight to just take stock of what's going on in your body or all kinds of things like that. So you need time. You need place. Um, you need support of being able to practice skills if you're living in an interpersonal situation. Um, I can remember when I was trying to get myself to swim for exercise, basically for my hip, but it also was good for overall conditioning. And it was really hard to say, okay, I'm going to swim every day. Well, I couldn't get myself to do that in the middle of busy days that I have. And then something came up where there was a six in the morning, couldn't believe I was going to do it, but uh, called Master's Swim, um, where people get together and they swim and they have a, t a coach who gives you a swimming regimen. I was never a competitive swimmer, so I was at the slow lane. But, you know, I'd go and there would, once I was in that environment, there was a group of people, uh, there were four or five of us in the same lane, and every lane was filled with that many people, and we became like a little group, and if you were not there on a given day the next time, because it was three times a week, people say, where were you on Wednesday? We missed you. And so, actually, you start to have peer pressure, and it was sort of a nice peer pressure, even though, you know, it's really hard to get up at 5.15 in the morning in the dark and think, I'm going to go into a locker room and then into a pool and it's cold it's like really amazing to do that i was <laughs> i can't believe i did that i did it for several years and and but i think what got me to do it was that i had a facilitating environment when i wrote the book that i wrote on dbt very hard work for me to just stick to it, the writing every day but i set up a system with a person that uh, an editor that I talked to every week on the phone. I'd send her whatever pages I had done. She would read them, and then we would talk about it. And that kind of interpersonal environment that was reinforcing and connecting, that kept me going. So you really have to think about what you're asking someone to do out of the blue or in the cold or in an interpersonal environment where there isn't one person who's a cheerleader. And then think, really, would you be able to do that? Um, so why does this step go wrong of trying to build in support? Well, one, we sometimes, when we teach skills, we assume 
that there's uh, enough support, there's enough commitment, and we take it rather casually. Um, or we just don't uh, envision the person's life, and we think the skill in itself is so valuable that, of course, this person's going to practice it. But, you know, commitment alone fades if you don't have supportive environmental conditions that, that facilitate it, right? Um, you know, I think uh, the person who wants to stop yelling at their child might need reminders at home, posted somewhere at home, on the phone, uh, might need to have a kind of a be watching for an early warning system at home so that you, you aren't caught by surprise that your child just had a little tantrum. But in fact, you know, you saw it coming and you got yourself ready and you thought about, you know, using the stop skill. Um, maybe you have a, a spouse, a partner, an older child or someone else that, you know, is pre-informed about what you're trying to do and therefore tries to support you in doing it. Uh, maybe maybe you agree to text to your therapist or your skills trainer uh, what you what you did as part of the whole sequence, so that there is reinforcement built in that you're going to get it, if not in the home, outside the home from somebody who cares about you. Maybe you're going to chart it or put gold stars up on your calendar when you do it. So these things about creating room, creating space, creating time, uh, creating reinforcement. Uh, taking care of these surrounding conditions are often needed to get somebody to use a skill, and those are often left out of what we do. Number five, now you have a goal. Now you understand the rationale for the skill and how it plugs into that goal. Now you've developed whatever commitment is possible for the time being. Now you have some supportive conditions. Now what? Now you need good instruction. You need to be told, instructed, read, find out, learn exactly what to do, step by step. The practical instructions of how to get this done. You know, if you teach somebody to observe their breathing, exactly what are they observing? It's not enough to say observe the breath. The breath is a... Uh, complex thing that's right in the middle of our whole being. We don't often stop and think, well, which part of the breath are we going to observe? But you want to make it exact and specific. Otherwise, the person gets kind of too vague. Or for how long to observe the breath? And what to do if you get distracted while observing the breath? You need concrete instructions. Or let's say you're instructing somebody to validate their um, child or validate their partner or their spouse um, exactly how, what words do you use to validate, what tone of voice, what kind of body posture, what kind of facial expression, you know, all these things. I mean, you've got to get specific about what it means to validate because validating, which when it happens naturally and it works, it just folds everything together automatically, but if you're having trouble validating and you're working on validating or it's a difficult situation in which to validate somebody, you need to know what you're doing and learn it specifically. So you need specific instructions, right? Or let's say you're, a, you're trying to teach somebody to act opposite um, 
the uh, their urge um, to uh, their urge to just cover up things and not be honest uh, because you're afraid of the consequences. And so you want to act opposite. So, so that means you're going to act by being upfront. And and you put, how exactly do you do that? I mean, it's one thing to say that, but your your whole being will try to stop you from doing that. So you need very specific instructions. What goes wrong at this step? I think one would just be imprecision in learning. You know, you don't know precisely enough what to do, and you haven't anticipated what the challenges really will be. There has to be an understanding of, of how this works in this person. And so it, it's really a lot of it's just imprecision and vagueness and, and not giving the whole clear instructions. Um, so let's see, when I look at the timing now, I'm going to try to go more quickly through the other steps. Um, what do you do if you've already done all these things and now you've been instructed or you've gotten instruction. You might have gotten online instruction. You might have read a manual to get instruction, or you might be with somebody who explains it to you and instructs you. You know, now what you need is somebody, ideally, to model how to do it. So what's, what does this look like from the outside in? What's it look like from the inside out? What does it sound like to do this skill? What does it feel like to do this skill? You know, so it isn't it, it isn't usually enough just to instruct, provide instructions. It's also showing, which means that the person who's teaching it needs to know it from the inside and be able to talk like fluently, like this is what I'm this is what it's like to try to do this. At least when I try to do this, um, here's the problems that I have. You know. And sometimes it's just helpful to know that your instructor knows. That already increases your commitment, your effort. It reinforces you. If, they can, if they're interested enough to have learned it and they do it themselves, um, and it strengthens the attachment sometimes. So, and, and you need to tailor the modeling of it to that individual because you have to model what's going to work for that person. You know, like, like how would you model swimming a full stroke. But when you're teaching swimming to somebody who has terror of putting their face face down in the water, you would have to learn how to do that or take on the terror, one or the other, first. Um, how do you show someone how to be assertive and ask for what they want from someone if that person's life history has led them to feel terrified of asserting themselves because of the way they've been treated in the past. So you need to be able to model and have that modeling be attuned to that individual's experience. I realize these are a lot of steps, um, but you know, any one of these, if not done well, just knocks down the quality of the training and makes it that people are less likely to do it or do it effectively. So what about next? What do I want to say next? You've now been taught the skill, instructed the skill, modeled the skill. You're now trying the skill and really to get the skill in your own sequencing, in your own uh, dance of life, in your own repertoire. Let's say you've got that. But I want to say one more thing about getting it in, getting this to happen. Everything I've said is sort of like, how do you instruct? How do you model? How do you tailor this to the person? But there's another component here 
which is really important, and it has to do with balance. I mean, on the one hand, you do want to very accurately deliver the skills, explain the skills, show the skills, give examples of the skills, right? But you also um, want to attend to the interpersonal, the relational aspect of, of how you're doing this. You want that client, if it's a client or that other person, if it's another person or that family member, if you're teaching a family member, to feel understood by you, like if possible, deeply listened to, validated, um, where you get what's going on and there's room to pause and room to let this person be this person and, uh, and, and, and let them have a process and let you be part of that process. That is so important, the, the relational encounter in which you teach the skills so that you, it doesn't feel like you're squeezing the relationship component in while you're teaching skills. For those of us who teach skills, it can be very helpful to watch yourself teach skills on a videotape because then you can see how much pressure you might have been under and how actually you were not leaving room for the other person and you weren't listening deeply. And you were so caught up and anxious about teaching correctly. And that can kill it because then it doesn't feel very relational and the, and the client uh, feels like they need to look elsewhere. Um, you know, I want to say again that skills training is not a superficial encounter. Uh, it isn't at the opposite end of the spectrum of depth from in, from in-depth psychotherapy. It actually, if done certain ways, is deep through action, through teaching, through coaching, through listening and through adjusting and giving feedback. Now let's say you've done all these things. What else happens that can be done well or poorly? Now you are getting the person to practice the skill, to strengthen the skill. Um, you're trying to uh, get them to do that with you, in front of you, um, reporting back to you, however that is. But it's like, okay, now they've gotten to do the stop skill. They've gotten to do one of the tip skills. They've gotten to do acting opposite. They've gotten to do observing mindfully, whatever it is of all the skills. They've gotten them to do it. Now you want to uh, have them do that again and again. Repetition, repetition. So you have to find a way to have repetition happen without it being totally boring. You know, like with a language, you need to repeat. I say this about languages because I've been little by little teaching myself Italian. And uh, it's really hard when you're not in an Italian milieu or have Italian feedback. And I've realized that I need that. Um, in, even in doing the preparation for the podcast, I realized this is so obviously missing in my learning that I'm doing this by myself and I you can get instruction online and all these things. I need to be talking to somebody. I just do. I have to go to the trouble of finding a person who's going to sit down with me every week uh, um, more than once and, and be talking because um, I need to practice in something a little bit more like the real situation. Um, so the problem here is when we assume that somebody is going to be able to um, permanently learn this by getting it in their repertoire once. Um, the last two steps I'll just say because it's time to stop. Um, the next step is a big one, which is making sure that somebody is now taking this sequence they learned with you 
and they now are practicing it in at home or in their real life situation and in more than one real life situation and they can start with small bits and small steps and you can help them by coaching them you can help by practicing preparing doing role plays to have people do things doing imaginary rehearsals for things um have them uh, text you after they do it at home and how did it go and things like that. So some way, uh, extend what you've been doing in all the steps I've been talking about. Extend that into the natural environment. If that step doesn't happen, of course, all of this just stays where you learned it and it, it doesn't get, go anywhere. And now it still has much more to do. You have to insert it into the real world, right? So that that's the last. Uh, that's actually step nine of my ten. And the tenth one was just... Um, you can never assume that this is all just going to stay present just because you've learned it once or twice. It's sort of like you need to, if you're going to do these skills or any one or any three of them or any six of them, you need to go back and do it again and again and again. Just like learning a language, if you stop practicing it, you know, a little while later, the grammar will start to fall out, the vocabulary will start to fall out. You'll lose your confidence, etc. The same thing happens with DBT skills. So it's it's a commitment to your life. Okay, I have to stop. It's been exactly one hour, I think, and I hope something in this was useful to those of you who are learning these things, or who are teaching these things, or family members of people who are learning these things. And I'd love any feedback. And I'll be sending out notification and on my website of when I would do a Zoom session. Thanks all. Have a good week as spring continues to unfold around us. Bye.